And generally, the way the, that model, it's really a way of orienting the mind. And I'll talk a little bit more about this later tonight. But it's a respect that there is difficulty in life. And the way Sylvia talks about this first insight or first in the traditions called a noble truth, noble in the, in the sense that it's liberating to understand things in this way. She says, life is challenging for everyone. That seems pretty fair. And then the second part is, and we suffer when we struggle with the ordinary, unavoidable challenges in life. So even if you're having one of those lives where things have pretty much worked out for you, you're attractive, and you're healthy, and you're intelligent, and you're fortunate, and you know all of those things. Even for those people, do you want to raise your hands? <laughs> it's funny how we're, who we're afraid to admit if we're one of those fortunate people. But even for those people, life is challenging. And the question is whether we're a relatively fortunate person or clearly maybe there are people in the room that are at this other end of the spectrum where things have not gone your way in life. But wherever we are in that spectrum, life is challenging. And the real question is, what does the mind do with the inevitable struggles, challenges in life? Does it resist? Does it relate in a way that contributes to suffering? Or does it relate to the inevitable challenges in a way that alleviates the difficulty of life? So that's really the question. And so then we really begin to understand this basic form. You know, there are many ways we practice. One is this basic form of meditation practice where we sit down in a quiet, simple place, you know, where we're not going to have a lot of duties and responsibilities or a lot of distractions. And so even there, there will be the inevitable disturbances, challenges, right? We're restless or the knee hurts, or the back hurts, or the mind is tired and sleepy, right? So there we are, in a, in a miniature sense, experiencing what all human beings are experiencing, that life is challenging. And because it's a relatively simple environment, our daily sit, daily meditation time, then we're more likely, it's not guaranteed, but we're more likely to notice how we're relating to the inevitable challenges that are arising during our 20 or 30 minute, 45 minute set. And, and because you know we're remembering to whatever degree we are to be mindful, that's that continuity of awareness. Not just a moment of awareness, but most importantly, we're tracking how it is. So there we are sitting, tracking how it is, and an ordinary challenge arises, like a disturbing memory, or a pain in the knee, or interesting sound, or enticing fantasy. So something arises, and whatever it is, the mind's going to relate to it in one way or another. And then because we're, we have some semblance of mindfulness, however feeble or however powerful it might be, we're tracking and we're noticing how the mind is relating and what that sets in motion. So if we're relating to the knee pain with resistance, and then there the mind being somewhat mindful is tracking that, and it's noticing that resisting knee pain is itself painful. 
So there's the pain of the knee, which is unpleasant. And then there's the resistance to the knee pain, and that's more unpleasantness. Or a painful memory comes, and uh, we're aware that of that. We're aware of the different compulsions or impulses to react to the memory. But there's also wisdom in the mind, and wisdom recognizes, oh, it's just a memory. It doesn't react, doesn't resist. And then the next one, we notice what an effective, wholesome way of relating to a painful memory that was. So mindfulness, because of the continuity, you know, because mindfulness, but when we use the word mindfulness, we're really talking about a continuity of clear and relaxed awareness. And so we're really seeing this effect that life is challenging, and we're either relating to those challenges in ways that basically bind up the mind, entangle the mind, or we're relating to the inevitable challenges in ways that don't entangle the mind. And we just want to track that, because if we're tracking how we make messes for ourselves, or how we avoid messes, we become more skillful. It's really that simple. And that's what the, you know, this first teaching the Buddha gave after his own powerful insight. He found some friends that he had been practicing with, and he gave this talk on the Four Noble Truths, that life is challenging for everybody, and when we struggle with that challenges or resist or react, we have this dukkha, is the word he used, mental suffering. Basically, we're oppressing, the mind is oppressing itself. It's weighing itself down. That's not what we normally think. We think that when we're suffering, it's because what you guys are doing to me, you know, or how the world isn't delivering what I'd like the world to deliver. But the more we pay attention, we realize that the real oppression we experience is what our mind does when it experiences the ordinary challenges of life, the unavoidable challenges of life. That's the stress. Now, it doesn't mean we're not going to have challenges, because remember, those are the ordinary things of life. But there's a, there's a lot of place for skill in how the mind relates to challenges. And we can learn this in such a microscopic way. So it's not like we have to go looking for big challenges like a divorce or a job loss or winning the lottery is a challenge, falling in love is a challenge. I mean, pretty much most of life's events are challenges. So we don't have to go looking. When we're just in our ordinary set, how we deal with just ordinary knee pain, ordinary back pain, ordinary experiences of calm. So it's not just the difficult experiences, it's also the pleasant. Every single moment of experience is an opportunity to notice there is this experience, it's being known, and there's a habit energy, a compulsion to react to it. And generally, we react to the pleasant by wanting it. We react to unpleasant experience by pushing it away or wanting to deny it or distract ourselves. And we react even to ordinary neutral experience by ignoring it. So pretty much out of habit, based on habit energy, conditioned habit energy, we're reacting to absolutely every experience. Just think about how many experiences we're having. 
I mean, each of our sense gates, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, so these six, in these six ways, in each moment, we're experiencing. And so, so many ways the mind, out of habit, is reacting with grabbing the pleasant, being averse to the unpleasant, ignoring the neutral. Whether it's in terms of our tactile experience, sensation, auditory experience, sight, and thought, too. Pleasant thoughts, unpleasant thoughts, and neutral thoughts. And all of that reacting out of habit, pushing away what's unpleasant, trying to grab what's pleasant. So if we have a pleasant fantasy, the way we grab, you know, you can't really grab the thought, but the way we act out the grasping is we think that pleasant thought again. We try to get back to the, the pleasantness of that thought, that memory, that fantasy we just had. So grasping doesn't mean you know we're actually taking a hold of it. It means the mind is struggling to make it last. Just like an aversion, when it's unpleasant, we're struggling to make it go away. And when it's neutral, we're struggling to ignore it because it's not important, because it's neutral. So the Buddha taught, you know, there is dukkha. The mind does react to ordinary ups and downs of life. And this struggle has a cause, meaning the mind is doing it right now. And if with mindfulness we can see what the mind is doing, then we can let go. The mind can't let go of this habit of oppressing itself unless it sees what it's doing. We have to see how every time we see something pleasant, in a subtle or not so subtle way, the mind is grasping. We have to actually see that in order to know, oh, I don't need to do that. If we're unconscious, if we're not mindful, we'll just do it. We won't even know we're doing it. You know, the Dalai Lama tells a funny story of doing a set of teachings over a period of time in Los Angeles and every day to go to the auditorium, you know, be, be picked up at that hotel, driven to the auditorium. And evidently they passed, they drove down the street where there are a lot of electronic stores. And some of you may know this, but the, the Dalai Lama likes electronic gadgets. He sort of fiddled with them when he was younger and sort of kept up his interest. And he said, you know, at the end of the seven days or however long he was teaching there, he started to want things he saw on the windows of these electronic stores. He didn't even know what they were, but he noticed that his mind was attracted. You know, like, oh, that's probably interesting. That would probably be fun to see or have. And this is how our minds are. I mean, we can be afraid of things that don't exist. We can want things that we don't even know what they are. And we ignore so much of our lived experience. Just think about how much of today, in terms of what you saw, what you heard, what you felt tactically in the body, what you thought, what you smelled and tasted, you weren't there for because you thought it was ordinary. Like how much, for example, of all the things we ate today, how many of those moments of tasting were we actually there? You know, not too many. Because mostly what we were eating, we thought were just neutral experience, you know. Maybe the first few bites, there was some quality of presence, clear, relaxed presence. But then, you know, okay, spaghetti, I know this. The mind thinks it knows it, thinks it's just decides it's ordinary, and decides it can do something else. We can plan our vacation, 
We can worry about something that happened earlier in the day. So we're disconnected from life through our grasping what's pleasant, pushing away what's unpleasant, and ignoring what's neutral. But when we see that, that that suffering, that reactivity suffering, we see that the cause is right here, moment by moment in the mind, then the mind can let go. When the mind lets go, we have the third noble truth, which is letting go has, letting go has happened, basically. Cessation. The cessation of struggling with experience by pushing away the unpleasant, grabbing the pleasant, ignoring the neutral, has ceased for a moment. And we recognize it. That's a moment of mindfulness where the mind recognizes, oh, the mind isn't struggling, and it's like this now. This isn't something you know, that you have to practice for 30 years. So even tonight, in a few minutes, we'll do our sit. And you want to notice the different moments, like the moment of recognizing that there is a challenge, and the moment noticing when you're, when you can notice that you're reacting to that particular challenge, like knee pain, or boredom, or sleepiness, or whatever it might be, enticing thought, disturbing thought. So you're going to notice the challenges that arise. You're going to notice when you get identified and react to the challenges. And hopefully we'll also notice when challenges arise and there's enough wisdom to not react with greed or aversion or delusion, ignoring. And we'll experience that moment of cessation. Like the mind is there, it's clear, it's relaxed, and it's not reacting. It's not struggling with the conditions of the present moment. There's still the conditions. The mind is still doing what it's doing, mental activity. The body is still experiencing what it's experiencing. There's seeing, there's hearing, there's tasting, there's touching, there's smelling, and there's thinking. But there's no part of the mind reacting to that. And that's what we call a moment of freedom, a moment of liberation, a moment of insight. Insight in the sense that the mind is recognizing, oh my God, this is the way to be. You know, to be fully a human being, fully intimate, responding, but not entangling, not creating this psychic weight through resistance, through struggle, through pushing and pulling, through ignoring. And that's the fourth noble truth. That sort of, oh, there's a way. This is the way. This is the way to live. It's an insight into the path. Oh, this is what spiritual life is about. Or just a wise human life. This is what a wise human life is about. Being present, noticing all the habits of struggling or resisting pushing and pulling, but not being confused by that habit energy. And we're not going to get rid of our habit energy soon because it's got a lot of momentum. We've practiced grabbing, trying to get the good stuff a long time. And we've practiced being afraid and getting rid of the bad stuff for a long time. And we've practiced ignoring all the neutral experiences in our life for a long time. These are deeply ingrained habits. So that's why... The, the most important thing with the mindfulness practice is to learn how to be continuous with mindfulness. Now at first, like in this 30-minute sit we'll do tonight, it's going to feel like it takes so much effort to be continuous. But actually that's, it's just a, an unavoidable uh, perception at the beginning of practice. And you'll see that it doesn't really take a lot of effort to be mindful, to 
to be present. It just seems like it does because the habit of distraction appears to be so powerful. We feel like we have the ego, in a sense, has to sort of rise up and make some kind of muscular effort not to get distracted. So that's okay. That's going to happen. But you'll see that the, the effort to be mindful is really the effort not to forget. You know, it's like we're not forgetting, we're not forgetting, we're not forgetting, we're not forgetting. It's like when we watch a movie. Do you have to make effort not to forget what's going on? You know, I mean, as long as they're not obvious distractions. Well, our life is very much like a movie, you know. But the thing is, this particular movie, you know, we it's like we, we're constantly creating little sub, you know, there's the movie, and then our, there's our response or reaction to the movie. And we, we just respect our reaction, our responses, so much more than the actual movie. So it's just about not losing track, remembering. In fact, the word mindfulness uh, in Pali is sati, and it really comes from, it comes from the root to remember. So remember this about medita- or mindfulness meditation, that so much of what it's about is remembering. And what are we remembering? We're simply remembering this is how it is now. So it's just that re- that much. It's not about remembering to be a good meditator, you know, remembering to be with the breath at the nostrils. That's not mindfulness. Mindfulness is remembering it's like this. So what does that mean? If we're really confused, then the moment of mindfulness is remembering, oh, the mind is confused and it's like this. It's not about judging that we're confused or expecting that we shouldn't be confused. It's about acknowledging that right now the mind is confused. It's like this. Can this be okay? And when the mind is really clear and relaxed, then a moment of mindfulness simply knows, oh, the mind is really clear and relaxed and it's like this. There's no need to grab a hold of it or want it to last. If you do want it to last, oh, I really like this relaxation. I really like this clarity. Then you notice, oh, that's greed. Greed is being known now, and it's like this. And that's the next moment of mindfulness, to know that the mind is greedy. It wants that calm, that clarity to last. We just notice that. You see, so mindfulness, it will seem like you're trying to control your experience, but mindfulness isn't about controlling it. It's about tracking the way it is. Oh, now this is being known. Now this is being known. Now it's like this. Now it's like this. The body's like this. The mind's like this. And there's really just those two things are all we have to know. By the body, the Buddha means the five physical senses. So the tactile experience, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching. Now when we're sitting, you know, when conditions are ideal, then the body pretty much is the physicality, the sensation. We're not really seeing uh, too much, but, you know, there is seeing. Even with your eyes closed, there's seeing. And, of course, there's hearing. Generally, we're not doing the tasting and smelling isn't uh, often predominant, doesn't sort of grab the attention. But mostly we're resting in the experience of the body with some hearing and seeing arising from time to time. So we just need to know the body and we need to know the mind. And as I mentioned last week, the mind is slippery. So we emphasize mindfulness with the body because when we do have some continuity with like the breath, moving in the body, or hearing as another anchor, or the just the general sensations of the body, 
then when thinking or emotion arises strongly, the relative continuity with the body, the breath, or hearing, will make it easier to see the thoughts, see the emotion, see the mental activity for what it is. Not to take it personally, but just recognize, oh, it's just mental activity. So I'll leave it here. Uh, any questions about what I've said thus far before we stretch our legs? Come on. Good. Let's stand up, stretch our legs so we'll be comfortable sitting. And maybe while we're, well, maybe not, so people can see. Actually, I'll mention just a, a little bit about walking practice, and we'll talk more about it next week, but why you just uh, straighten out your legs and let the blood flow. So I'll give these instructions next week in printed form, but just in case you want to experiment, it's a nice complement to sitting practice. The Buddha taught that we should cultivate mindfulness when standing, when sitting, when lying down, and when walking. And uh, in the monasteries in Asia over the centuries, the monks and nuns, they pretty much split their time. If they're practicing full time, they split their time between walking meditation and sitting meditation. Because it balances the mind. When we're sitting still, it supports uh, a kind of stillness in the mind. But it also supports sluggishness and sleepiness. When we're walking, when we move the body, it tends to agitate the mind, even if it's just a little bit. But it also supports brightness in the mind. And remember, the two things we're really working on is getting skilled at tranquility and alertness. So especially if you have uh, an imbalance where there's not enough alertness, then it's good to emphasize the walking practice more. Now, you know, in a perfect world, you'd have this beautiful forest, you know, with a beautiful earthen path, you know, no bugs. And you'd have, you know, 100 feet, nobody around, and you could walk back and forth. That's how it was, you know, back maybe today in some places. I practiced in Asia a couple times, and I had this beautiful little walking path next to my hut when I was in Thailand practicing at a monastery. But we don't have that. You know, we live in a city, and you're lucky if you have a 20-foot hallway. It's nice to be in a space that's not too cluttered. You know, maybe you have a private backyard that you can walk when it's not so hot and humid. But just find a place, even if it is just a 15-foot space in a room or a hallway. Take away some of the clutter. So then you have a spot, then just stand at one end and just know that you're standing. Right? That's what mindfulness is. It's, you just know it's like this. So in the most visceral sense, you just feel the feet making contact with the floor. You feel the muscles in the legs doing what they do. So you might just take a few seconds, and then you just begin to walk. Now, if again, if you had a, a nice length, you could just start walking at a, at a pace that supports mindfulness. But when you have a short space, you can't walk at a normal pace because you crash into the wall. You know? So you have to slow it down. That's OK. Just do what you have to do. And you're just noticing, so instead of the breath being your anchor, for example, you, you're lifting, moving, and placing of the foot is your anchor. Now the mind, like it does when you're sitting, it's going to wander from time to time, or a lot of the time. And that's not a problem. It's just an opportunity to learn. Remember, we're, mind, we're cultivating mindfulness. We're not cultivating control of the mind. Only be with the sensations in the feet. 
only be with the breath, only be with hearing. It's about when we're aware of the lifting and the moving and the placing of each step, then we know that. When the mind is thinking about tomorrow, we know that that's happening. Without being seduced, without being lost in the thought, there's a sense of space, wise space, that understands, oh, the mind is thinking this. It's like this. It's just thinking. The mind is just doing what the mind does. It thinks. So we're normalizing the thinking without getting lost in the content. So when you notice that thinking's happening, you don't have to pay a lot of attention to the content of that thought. You're, you're in a sense standing back, and so the content of the particular thought doesn't matter. But that the mind is thinking, that's what you want to recognize. You get the difference? Oh, the mind is thinking. And it's okay if you know the particular tone. Oh, judging. Or complaining mind. Or wondering mind. Fantasizing mind. Oh, it's like this. So that's going to happen with walking just like sitting. So you don't need me really to demonstrate walking, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> so there's lifting. Now, if you're walking fast, you won't notice much more than stepping, 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 stepping. And then if you want to use a mental note, then just use something like stepping, stepping, or placing, placing, or left, right, left, right. But when you're walking more slowly, then you can note more, because it would just be more obvious. So you can note lifting, placing, lifting, placing. And if you're using that mental noting, then you want, when you're repeating or making the note in your mind, you want it to connect with the actual experience. So the mental note, lifting, placing, isn't important. It's the mind's connecting with the visceral experience, and the mental note is aiming the mind to that. Just like if you note you're in and out of the breath, every time you use the word in, it's like you're aiming your mind right to the sensations of the breath, touching the nostrils going in, or right to the experience of the belly rising and then falling. Right? So mental noting is thinking. It's a form of thinking, right? A simple form of thinking that directs the mind to the present moment. If your mental noting sends your mind toward more thinking, that's not useful. So use mental noting. It's just a, a skillful means. You can keep it in your back pocket. You can use it. Some people use it a lot. Some people never, never use it. But you can name, literally, in your mind, like you're whispering to yourself at the back of your mind. You can name your experience if you need that help to aim your attention to whatever it is that's predominant, whether it's the particular anchor, like in walking, it's the lifting and placing, or in sitting practice, it's either the breath at the nostrils, the breath in the belly, or some people work with hearing, some people work with the sensations of the body. So even though you don't have the written instructions, just experiment with walking practice. And remember, it's just about being mindful. And just have the intention not to be mindful walking for 20 minutes, but walking from the beginning of your lane to the end of your lane. So there's a real emphasis in this style of practice to have a lane. Because then, like if you're walking around Lake Calhoun, you may be mindful for 10 steps, but then you get distracted, and you won't realize it until you get around the lake, and you're getting in your car, and you're like, oh, you're supposed to be walking meditation practice. But if you have a lane, every 20 seconds, at the end of the lane, you'll be standing there, and you realize, oh yeah, 
this is not just walking, I'm doing walking meditation practice. And you realize that the mind was wandering, you get a chance to start over again. Okay, stopping, you can note that. Okay, just stopping, standing, turning, you turn yourself around, and you notice I'm standing, and then you start again. And so each end of the walking path is just a chance to come back to the present moment. So this in some ways is an advantage of walking over sitting, because you know, I'm sure I have discovered if you did your homework and sat trying to sit every day, you can go for long periods of time. And you can even be quite still and composed in your posture. You can be completely lost in thought, doing this, doing that, or even unconscious, asleep. So walking has the advantage of of supporting more alertness because we're moving the body. But it can also stimulate thinking. So there's always going to be pluses and minuses. So let's sit down and we'll have about a 25 minute sit together. Do your best to compose the body, finding some stability as best you can. And of course, it won't be perfect. Just do the best you can. For some people, 25 minutes will be a bit of a stretch. And so you're going to have some painful sensations arise. And uh, instead of thinking that you can't handle the pain, just practice with it for as long as you can skillfully practice with it. Meaning, oh, you drop the anchor, you turn the attention to the strong, painful sensations. And you practice relaxing and being clear, because that's what mindfulness is. A relaxed, clear, and continuous awareness of what's happening in the present moment, either the anchor or some other predominant experience of the mind or body. So when pain arises in the body, don't immediately assume you have to move the body. See, at least a few times, if you can just be relaxed, clear, and continuous. Relax in the sense of you're not trying to fix it or make it go away. You're relaxing with it. With interest. That's the clarity. And then continuity. And if you do that a couple times and all you're doing is getting tighter and tighter, resisting the pain, then in a quiet way, make an adjustment so you release as much of the pain as you can. Stretch out your leg quietly so you don't disturb your neighbors. It's even okay to very quietly go to a standing position for three or four minutes till the pain goes away, and then to quietly come back. So, you know, at home, you, you have a little bit more options here. Of course, we're trying to take care of each other. But don't sit with pain, and all you're doing is resisting because you're practicing resistance. We're already good at that. <laughs> so we don't need to practice that. So you might want to start by taking a few slow, deep breaths. Take your time to fill and empty the lungs. And maybe one more time, as if you have all the time in the world to fill and empty the lungs. And whenever you're done, you can allow the breath to continue on its own, knowing that the body can breathe without 
anybody needing to control it. And we'll receive the sound of the bell. And even if you're not working with hearing as your main anchor, let's just take a couple minutes opening to hearing. Mindfulness is a clear, alert, relaxed, and continuous attention. In this case, with the the experience of hearing. Aware, knowing both the very subtle sounds and all the Obvious, clear sounds. Not needing the experience of hearing to be different than it is. can either continue working with hearing as your primary anchor or moving on, bring the same spacious receptive awareness down to the body, beginning by feeling the whole body just sitting, the body as it actually is now. And again, allowing for this inclusive is accepting awareness of the body sitting. Not afraid of any unpleasant sensations, not ignoring any of the neutral, picking it all in. And perhaps noticing how alive the experience of the body is with change. Sensations are constantly changing. And as we're, as the mind is aware of the body, also noticing those habits to want to control or fix 
or get rid of or hold on. Just notice all that and notice how they're always extra, always stressful, those habits. We may not be able to stop them, but we can recognize with mindfulness that they're unwholesome, unnecessary. And whenever you're ready, feel free to move directly, specifically to the sensations of the breath moving in the body as a more specific anchor for the meditation practice, a place to keep coming back to. One can be aware of the breath at the nostrils or be aware of the breath as the movement in the abdomen, whatever is easy, whatever the mind likes more. And remember, it's okay to use a meditation phrase or meditation word. For example, if you're feeling the breath at the nostrils, you can repeat the words in, out, with the in and out breath, or rising and falling if you're aware of the breath at the belly. Or any word, words that support the continuity of mindfulness with things as they are. Remembering the three parts of practice, continuity of present moment awareness. This is the bright 
interested, alert aspect of the practice. The second is relaxation. So we're remembering that continuity of mindfulness does not require tension. And the third aspect of practice is to check the attitude. Is the mind struggling to control or fix? Is the mind accepting things as they are? Just check the attitude from time to time. Remember to begin again. No need to judge. 
no need to figure out whether you're a good or a bad meditator. Just begin again. The easiest way to begin again is to simply recognize that the body's sitting. In a direct way, <clears throat> feel the body sitting, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Open, be aware that the body, sitting body, is like this. And then when you can, bring the attention to the anchor that you're working with, connecting and sustaining attention. When the mind becomes distracted, simply notice that that's happening. If you can, return again to the anchor. Whenever the distraction is quite predominant, you might need to completely open to the distraction, not even try to come back to the anchor. But instead, practice relaxing, practice being interested and continuously aware of the distraction as a present moment happening, whether it's pain or particular kind of thinking pattern. Can you be aware without being confused, identified with the distraction? This is where noting can be useful. You can note, oh, thinking. Thinking is being known. It's just thinking.
be sitting for a couple more minutes. <clears throat> Remembering this attitude, this possible attitude of complete acceptance. Of course, we can't force it, but we can, in a sense, be inspired by this possibility of the mind being clear and relaxed and accepting. Some of us at the center do this hand gesture. It's called Anjali. Just put your hands together and your forehead down toward the tops of the fingers. You don't need to do that, but gesture from the east, from Asia. And it's just a, a nice gesture of thank you or gratitude for the practice, for the time we had to practice. So in the privacy, when you're all alone, you can just experiment, see if that's a gesture you want to incorporate into your practice. So feel free to stretch out your legs. Um, would you mind turning the lights, the top two, about halfway up? Maybe a little bit more on that last one. Yeah, that's good. Thanks. mentioned last week that a lot of good uh, instruction comes out when people share from their practice. So almost every week, if we have time, we'll take 15 or 20 minutes and uh, a chance for people to ask questions and also to share a little bit about what you're noticing, what's challenging when you try to apply the instructions, what seems to work well. And again, questions about any of the instructions I've given you. And it's nice to say your name, too. So if there are any questions now, this would be a good time. Oh, was this it? Yeah. isn't it? So Michelle was saying that she nodded off uh, both this time and last week. And did you practice at home? Did you get a chance to practice at home? Did you notice it there as well? So it's not a day. Practice yeah. in the evening. Mm -hmm. 
so this is a common occurrence. Um, you know, generally we're oppressed, <laughs> we're overwhelmed in our practice in two ways: sleepiness and restlessness. Right. So the, the two energetic imbalances and. The Buddha talked about the five hindrances to concentration or this unification of the mind. So normally our mind is scattered and the energy of the mind dissipated. And the practice of meditation and then more generally just being more mindful in life, it's really a way of collecting, unifying the energy of the mind uh, in the present moment. And so... uh, Two of the main challenges to that work of unifying the mind, bringing the mind together in the present moment, restlessness and dullness. Now, when we get pretty good at taking the attention and directing it toward our primary anchor, like the sensations of the breath at the nostrils, or the belly, or hearing, or the feeling, sensations of the whole body, when we get pretty good at, you know, disciplined, picking up the attention and bringing it to the primary object and picking the attention up and bringing it to the uh, primary object, you know, wanders, we bring it. And and getting some continuity with that primary object, things begin to settle down. Because to a large degree, the feeling of being awake arises because the mind is agitated by what we're worried about and what we're excited about. And that's all of a sudden we're having the mind do something really simple like feel the in-breath, feel the out-breath. Well, compared to thinking about losing your job, it's not very agitating. And it's like we've, we've become dependent on fear and greed to keep the mind awake. And when the mind experiences simple experience, neutral and simple experience, it just assumes it's okay to go to sleep. And, and it does. Now, it could be that you're sleep deprived, in which case the answer is very simple. You don't get more sleep. But even people who are quite skilled at meditation and who aren't sleep deprived, this is a very tenacious obstacle to meditation practice because we have to overcome a very strong habit in the mind that thinks when things are simple, it's okay to go unconscious. So how do we what's that? How do we counteract that? You have to get you have to find a way to be interested in the next in-breath, the middle of that next in-breath, all the way to the very end of the in-breath. And even interested in that little gap before the beginning of the out-breath. You're interested in that. So that's the alertness. So remember, there are three things. There's the alertness or the continuity. It's the alertness that allows for the continuity. If we're not interested, we're not going to have a continuity of awareness. We're going to be interested in just one moment, and then we're going to think, this is boring. And we'll go, we either could create or find something that for at least a moment seems interesting, and then another. But mostly we're bouncing it around. That's why the mind is so scattered. So we're training with an ordinary thing like the breath, not to put ourselves asleep, but to learn how to both tranquilize, but also how to find a way to be interested in the present moment, even when the present moment is neutral or simple. It is possible to be really interested in what's simple. 
like we see an ant, you know, it's just an ant. But there are people, really intelligent people, who spend 40 years studying ants or studying wood or, you know, things that we would never look twice at. And they're fascinated and they're very alert, you know. So this is our breath. This is relevant. But we have to cultivate that kind of interest. So first, make sure you're getting enough sleep. And then when you're starting to get that nod, which is very common, so be forgiving, then see what you can do to energize the mind. How can, the, how can you invite more interest into the mind? Not in an aggressive way. What can you do to uh, increase the alertness and the continuity? Yeah, thanks, Michelle. Did you have a question? Maybe a little louder. Well, it sounds like it's unpleasant to you, so... You, huh? Well, what is it about the sound that makes you sleepy? Is it the sound, or is it the mind thinking it's not important? I don't know. Well, that's something to get interested in. It's like, so, it's like, because, you know, if you should sit up in front of the group, and then, you, you know, then you'd be awake. You know, it isn't, it isn't the sound of the fan. It's, it's kind of what we're taking the moment to be. And so when, whenever the mind thinks there's nothing I have to do, it's going to go unconscious. I mean, look at your cat, you know, if you have a cat. Or that's what animals basically do. They're alert when there's a reason to be alert. And when there's no reason to be alert, they take time to, you know, to catch up on their sleep. <laughs> So that's why it's a practice. We're learning how to be both tranquil and alert at the same time. That's what we really want. And to learn that, you know, we could go to the Mall of America and watch people, but that would be so agitating, we wouldn't get the tranquility that's needed to see clearly. So generally, the way we begin the practice is we go to neutral places. Like traditionally, you'd go to the quiet woods. You'd sit under a tree, a quiet hut, a quiet hall that's not nothing too agitating going on. And so the Yeah, so the sounds are more monotonous, you know, or they're they're sort of like background sounds. But you know, you can either not like them or you can appreciate how soothing those sounds actually are. Just like the sound of the wind through trees or the sound of water. See, sometimes, try this sometimes, sit next to a stream, and for the first hour or whatever, you're going to really like the sound. And then after a while, the mind won't like the sound. So the, it isn't about the actual sound of the stream, or the sound of the ceiling fan, or the blower, or the sound of people moving around you. It's not inherently good or bad. And that's really what we're doing is we're whether we're aware of the breath in terms of sensation or sound or the sensations of the body, we're looking for an unconditioned peace, not a peace that's dependent on the conditions being just right, 
but a peace that's unconditioned. Like we're finding a balanced mind that's both alert and relaxed, that's not dependent on the particular conditions. That's the whole idea. So we can take it on the road. The, the balance of peace, tranquility, alertness would be uh, available at any time in an argument, when things are really exciting, when things are really neutral. That's what we'd like. So this is just a really good place to practice that, you know, where the situation isn't too special, isn't too interesting. Now, if, if it doesn't work for you, then start with like walking practice, because it will be more interesting for most people, at least. <coughs> but even that will be boring, too. So we have to overcome the idea in the mind that neutral experience is boring. Because if we do, if we don't overcome that, then immediately we're writing off 80%, 90% of our life. Because so much of our life we're doing what we would ordinarily, out of habit, call boring or ordinary. You know, we're driving from here to there. We're, you know, scrambling our eggs. We're brushing our teeth using the toilet. And these are things we've done before. So it's so easy for us to dismiss. So we're really learning how to show up to hearing. And this moment of hearing is not the same as the previous moment, even though obviously it's similar, but the moment's different. And what we're learning is not to show up to that sound, but we're learning uh, to recognize, where we're learning to appreciate the showing up itself not so much what we're showing up to. You know, the next in-breath, in a sense, it isn't important. But showing up is important. You know, the capacity of our heart-mind to fully show up in the present moment with alertness and release, relaxation, that's the most important thing in the world. We're just using neutral experience to learn how to show up. Showing up is important. The sound of the fan, it's just the sound of the fan. The next in-breath, that's not really special, but showing up is special. And it will feel that way. The more we get a sense of what it is to show up, it's, uh, it stands out like, uh, oh, wow. That's not how I'm usually living. So you wouldn't take it as a, choose a different anchor? No, I mean, it's OK to shop around. As a beginning student, it's OK to shop around and see what anchor the mind likes. You might as well begin with an anchor that the mind likes, whether it's the breath at the nostrils, the breath at the belly, feeling the body sitting, using sounds. But, but basically, once you've shopped around a little bit, just stick with what you've chosen. Because everything, there'll be moments where you like it and moments where you don't like it. So it's better to be consistent. Because if you keep moving, you won't develop a friendship with that particular anchor. And you won't be able to do this other deeper work, which is learning how to show up to the anchor and then show up to distractions. And, and then eventually to show up to everything you know, as best you can. Thanks. Other thoughts, questions? Yeah. Um, Brad. Um, what about, like, right now I have back pain. And as I was trying to meditate, I would try to focus on the anchor, but then found myself then trying to address the pain. And I got lost in it. Yeah. Well, you have to choose. And there's, there's a bit of a spectrum, like how, what your attitude can be. At one end of the spectrum is, I'm really going to be with my anchor unless it's like unavoidable. I'm just going to keep returning to the anchor. 
That's one extreme. So I'm not saying practice there. The other extreme is you just let your attention go to whatever is predominant. And you may have an anchor because you've worked with it in the past. And you may go there just because it's your habit to go to the breath. But you're not directing your attention to the breath. That's another extreme. Generally, when we start the practice, we kind of aim sort of here. And then um, it's just a matter of time before we move more in this direction. Although we might, at times, even when we've been practicing for decades, come back to this um, more directed attention to the anchor. So the basic thing to look at is that pain in the back. If you can fully come back to the breath, and the pain of the back is there in the background of attention, right? because it's, it's there. You don't need to deny that the back hurts. But your interest, your alertness, resolve to be with anchor is stronger than the tendency of the mind to go to the predominant pain. And if you can do that without creating a lot of tension, then stay with the anchor. But if staying with the anchor means you have to repress the tendency to want to turn the attention or for the attention to go to the pain in the back, then let the, let the attention go to the pain in the back. Basically, it's not so much, I'm actually talking about it in the wrong way, because it's not so much we take the attention from here and put it in the back. The awareness is here, you know, and what we're doing is we're learning to feel or to know the in-breath right here in the middle of awareness. And it's like the painful sensations of the back. They want to enter to the middle of awareness. But we're kind of really, every time we tune in to the sensations of the breath, then the sensations of the back fall off into the background. And so at some point, you may need to let the sensations of the back come right into the space of awareness, right into the center of awareness. And then that's your object of meditation then. Now, you're not trying to control the pain in the back. You're just interested in it and relaxing with it as best you can. Now, pain is both a wonderful, powerful anchor for meditation, but that's only true if we can keep dropping the aversion to the pain. And aversion can manifest as fear, control, wanting to get rid of, hating, you know, and then the obvious forms of aversion, you know, like wanting to destroy the back or um, deny it or whatever. And then, you know, when we're working with pain, it's like just getting interested, like, does this experience of pain in the back have a particular location, point of greatest intensity? If so, can I open to that? Can I be interested in that? Oh, it's like this. Dinging is like this. Aching is like this. Throbbing is like this. So whatever the particular qualities we're really looking, is the, is the intensity increasing or decreasing? So you just notice that. Is the point of intensity static or shifting? You're noticing that. Is the mind uh, responding or reacting to the pain in any way? Oh, yeah. Is it aversion? Yeah. Okay, let's look at that. So you're just working with the pain in the back and all the associated emotions and mental responses to the pain in the back. And you can just keep working with that unless you're reinforcing aversion. Like aversion is really dominating the mind. Then skillfully change your focus because all you're doing is reinforcing aversion. So go to something neutral or even something pleasant or bring to mind loving kindness. Oh, it's not easy being a human being. I really care about having a body, you know. 
my pop, my mom and dad, they have a body. It's not easy for them to have a body either. So now you're doing some skillful thinking that you're preventing yourself from just spinning with aversion, reacting, entangling the mind with more aversion. And we'll talk about the loving-kindness practice uh, week five more specifically. Is it Brad, you said? Yeah, thanks, Brad. Yeah, do you have a thought? And then we'll go to you. Um, I think I did state that is my, my anchor is sound. Your mind what? My anchor is sound. Mm-hmm. And I get into a state that is nonverbal and non-visual. Mm-hmm. And last week especially, I found myself distracted by... Um, not your not your instruction during meditation, but the instruction that you gave beforehand. It would drift into my mind. What am I doing? I'm on my anchor, all right. And then what was the next thing I was supposed to do? Check my attitude. Yeah. And I would start. I would. What would be distracting is I would say, attitude towards what? I don't. There's nothing here to have an attitude about is me not having an attitude about that, you know, that yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> And then I would realize, that's fine, let it go. But it would keep coming back. Yeah. Like that so, sort of mental tape loop about whether or not I have an attitude, what should I do about it? Should I create one? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what was your attitude? Really, now in hindsight, when you look back, what was your attitude? You kind of said already, like, what did you say at the beginning of your comment? You said, you may, you kind of implied that things are pretty still, pretty quiet, right? Is that true? So there the attitude is maybe the mind is relaxed, the mind is accepting, the mind is calm. So checking the attitude means just knowing how the mind is relating. And so when the mind is relating to the present moment in a really skillful, wholesome way, you just know that. So it's really, this is interesting, like, because some of us have been conditioned, you know, it's our habit to, like, be a Girl Scout or a Boy Scout and do it right, you know, and Mark gave instructions. But the, the important thing is to become independent. So whatever I say or whatever you read, you want, don't want to be dependent on the words. You want to be dependent on your own understanding of what, what's sort of what's the point. You know, the point is for the mind to become unified in the present moment, and that unification we describe as an alertness, a brightness, an energetic quality of the mind, and a release of the mind too. Both the the energy, the brightness, and the release. And the attitude is wholesome, meaning the mind is related in a way that isn't agitating, isn't setting emotion tension. So that's how we're doing. So if that's what was already going on, then one thing you want to add to what was going on is the recognition that the mind is in balance. Like when our mind is in balance, there's calmness, there's alertness, there's continuity. We want to make sure, there's one more thing, that the mind understands that the mind is in balance. In the same way, when our mind is out of balance and we're struggling or we're judging, reacting, dull, hyper, we want to know that. 
you know, whatever, however it might be out of balance, we want to recognize that. And isn't that amazing? It just immediately corrects the out of balance. Like, I could be totally crazy, you know, sitting there looking serene, but, you know, planning my heart out, you know, or, you know, whatever. But in the next moment, I could recognize, oh, the mind is out of balance. Now, what kind of mind can clearly recognize a mind out of balance? A balanced mind can do that. An out of balance mind can't recognize the mind is out of balance. So this is the neat thing about that. I mean, this is sort of an aside from what you were saying. But in, in your experience, it would be like how to recognize the mind is moving towards a wholesome balance without destroying the balance. Does that recognition need to disrupt the balance? So that's your, that's your practice, basically, to find a way of acknowledging how it is without adding a disturbance. You know, and it's a practice. And a lot of that old kind of doing it right energy is going to creep in. But it won't be helpful. And you're eventually, it sounds like you already are, recognizing it's not helpful. You know, that's too much energy, trying too hard, um, wanting to do it right. So you just want to recognize that. And learn to trust your sort of intuition, like that it was already in balance, didn't need anything. Yeah, exactly. Somebody who else had their hand up that I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to show that you're not alone. How many people experience sleepiness when they're practicing? Yeah. So it's, it's really common, both for experience and non experience So first of all, just to honor it as a worthy uh, foe, basically. Because foe, oh, not in a like evil sense, but in the sense that dullness gets in the way of learning, of insight. In the same way that restlessness gets in the way of insight, or constantly wanting a better life and thinking about or a better future gets in the way of learning about the mind right now or thinking about the past gets in the way of learning. So it is a serious foe, sleepiness. And what you, whatever you can do to get more sleep, if that's what you think is the problem. But then when you decide to sit, you choose a time that makes sense in your life. You know, all of us have different situations and we have to, it's like, Think about it, I'm in this for the long haul. Even though it's a six-week class, if this is going to be a value, you're really in it for the rest of your life. So you've got to pace yourself like a marathon. 
if you think, you know, I've just got to do this 20 minutes. But see, you were really interested in, in transforming the way the mind is in life from distraction to what we call mindfulness, that clear and relaxed, simple presence. So we're training, we're undoing these habits of being distracted and reactive, and we're cultivating a different way. And however we can, we just do the next thing. Like the Buddha has this wonderful image, drop by drop by drop by drop, a bucket gets full, an ocean gets full, right? So if we want to transform the habits of the mind from distraction and reactivity to that simple, clear, relaxed presence, we just make the effort we can make in this moment, in this day, in this hour, whatever makes sense. The key is to do the next thing for the practice. You know, Whether you're in your busy life, doing the next thing means coming back to the experience of the body. Like how many times can you do that during the day? You know, I don't care how busy we are, we can do that during the day. At least a handful of times. We can come back and just be aware of the body. And probably some of us have enough time to be aware of an in-breath or an out-breath. You know, and then most of us have time to put at least five or ten minutes aside every day. And then as you start directly experiencing how valuable the practice is, you'll naturally want to do more time. For years and years, I sat three hours a day. It was the greatest thing. You know, and then I, besides that, I went on long retreats. But I didn't, it wasn't like a chore. I really wanted to put that time in. Now my life is busier. I can't put in, well, maybe it can isn't the right word, but I don't put in three hours a day. You know, but, you know, there for decades, there really haven't been too many days I haven't put in at least an hour to an hour and a half because it's the most important thing. I see how it makes my relationships better, my work life better. It makes everything better. It's not like wasted time. And you need less sleep the more you meditate. That's the other thing. So in a way, you don't even lose time. But initially, that may not be the case. Because as you get clearer, more clear and relaxed with the way things are, one of the first most powerful insights will be, I need more sleep. Right? Because we realize we're not being skillful. We're sort of, what keeps us going in life is agitation, fear, and greed. And that's how we can, for long periods of time, not get as much sleep as we should get. Because we're watching scary movies and reading enticing novels and chatting with our friends in ways that are provocative and reading too much of the news. And, and all of that just sort of makes it hard to sleep, you know? So when we settle down and really look at how it is, we realize how we've been pushing ourselves in an unskillful way. And we realize, oh my God, I've got to start taking care of this body, this mind. I'm going to put you to bed, honey. You know? <laughs> Thoughts over here, yeah. My name is Paul, and I've been struggling with my relationships with thoughts. So you, you described just a little bit ago that moment when you realize that you've been caught up in the land. And when I come to that point, um, I tend to sort of bear down about this experience as I want to concentrate. So I come back to my breath, but my response to the thought is usually I want to banish it as unwelcome as unpleasant. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I'm curious if you just are kind of responding with a version yeah. to whatever it is. And I'm trying to use some of that the balance kind of between labeling and judgment. And so I might label and identify and say, okay, well, that was a thought about the future, that was a thought about the past, that was a judging thought. But even in that labeling, I think I'm judging. And I'm not, um, uh, the idea of kind of maintaining the focus on the breath and simultaneously what you talked about is tracking with the thought and kind of allowing the thought to be there as opposed to that moment of vanishing in a way it's, it's, it's unwelcome is a distinction that I'm having trouble with. Yeah. I realize it's 9 o'clock, so I'll have to give a real quick answer. But if you actually, just in the way Paul described his situation, you see how much insight how much he understands about what's going on in the mind. So already that's quite good. Like Just to be able to discern that the attitude of recognizing the thought has aversion in it often. And then just the way you talked, you implied that and wasn't useful, maybe counterproductive even. So that's a lot of insight, like just how we relate to thoughts. And, how, and maybe it's uncovering a deeper pattern, which is, you know, I'm going to use this sort of willful, controlling energy to do this practice. And we'll fall on our face over and over and over again, because it doesn't work with this practice. But we have to fall on our face a couple, maybe 20,000 times, before we really get that struggling, even if it looks like meditation, is still struggling. And it's stressful. And it doesn't work. So I would just keep doing what you're doing. Try noting it, and if you note it with aversion, with aggression, you'll feel that that's not helping. You know, and ignoring it, that doesn't help. You know, so how can you be with the breath, which, you know, once we're really intimate with the breath, we're going to be intimate with everything. You can't be really sensitive with one thing without being sensitive to everything. That's the great thing about using an anchor. It's not about not getting really focused on the breath. It's about opening to everything. And the breath is just a vehicle to begin to uncover the sensitivity. So you're going to start noticing everything, in a sense, in living color. And then you'll notice the habits of treating your experience with aversion, with greed, with ignoring. And you'll see that's not the way. And a, a new way will come. You, know, you, can call it, you can give it a word. You could say it's equanimity, or wisdom, or peace. But the key is to actually see how you can be inclusive, allowing things to be the way that they are without controlling. And it has the flavor. The Buddha says, I'll just leave you with this, you know, that the practice has one flavor, unforgettable flavor. It's the flavor of freedom or liberation, one taste. And so this is what, even as for people who are brand new, even now you can just get a sense in few moments of your set or during your daily life that when you have some mindfulness, you're going to start detecting this flavor of freedom. Like, oh, it, it's really possible to be radically open and free. Oh, my God. You know, how come it took me so long? To, I, that was the flavor I had. It's like, how could I be? I was like 23 or 4 when I discovered meditation, Buddhist, the Buddhist teaching. And it's just like, was this time, like how could I be this old 
and have missed this for so long. And it was like all of a sudden I heard about meditation all around me. It was always there, you know, in articles and friends practicing, but I'd never registered. Now it was like everywhere. So it's just interesting how it is. Have a good week. Remember, next Tuesday you may not want to come back, but try to come back anyway. If you have a moment to bring the chairs down, that would be great. To the right and to the right once you get down the stairs. And if you didn't get the handout last week, they're up front.